This is Big Ideas, Birkbeck's free public lecture series, where academics bring their research out to local communities around London, sharing the exciting and innovative work that happens at Birkbeck, and opening up the world of research and universities. The series is organised by Birkbeck's Access and Engagement team, who support underrepresented groups of people to apply and succeed here at Birkbeck, University of London. This podcast will introduce you to the upcoming talks in the Big Ideas series. Our researchers will give you a preview of what's in store and hopefully entice you along to their event. If you like what you hear today and want to come along, you can find the details in the web link in the description of the podcast. We'd love to see you there. Hello, I'm Sophie from Birkbeck's Access and Engagement team. For this month's instalment of Big Ideas, we'll be hearing from Natalie Lancer, a PhD student from Birkbeck's Department of Psychological Sciences and an educational consultant and accredited coach. Natalie's talk will ask the question, do life's tensions help us grow? And it's based on her research with students having coaching at university. The talk will take place on Tuesday the 21st of May at City and Islington College's Centre for Lifelong Learning in Finsbury Park. I caught up with Natalie ahead of her talk to find out more. Um, so can I just start by, can you just start by telling me a bit about what your research is about? Yeah, um, the short answer of what it's about is a, um, the personal growth of undergraduates. Um, my thesis actually has a much longer title, um, which is Navigating the Tensions of Undergraduate Life, an Existential Phenomenological Analysis of Personal Growth and the Role of Coaching at a UK University, which is not terribly snappy. But <laughs> there's, um, there's things, there's words in there I think that are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, what, one of the things is, um, what are these tensions I'm talking about, navigating the tensions? And, you know, that's not something we often hear anyone particularly talk about, I don't think, the tensions of undergraduate life, you know. Aren't they all um, happy as Larry and just getting on with it? And what I found with my research is that um, actually there are many hurdles to overcome, but they're not clear-cut at all. So um, that's why I think the word tension is quite good, because there seem to be two poles to some of these hurdles. Um, They sometimes go one way and sometimes go another way, um, and they have to find the right balance for themselves and that's arguably part of growing up just to give you an example there's um this thing you know students love to go out and you often think about them going clubbing and you know all, all that sort of thing um but actually when i spoke to many of them i mean bearing in mind i only spoke to 15 but of these 15 it's amazing how many people said um they were just going out to impress others, you know, to make lots of friends. But actually, what they really wanted to do um, was spend time, like quality time, with quality friends. And if that meant sitting in your dressing gown at home, um, with the, you know, in a, in a flat share or something, doing that with your four closest friends or whatever, then then so then so be it. Because often in the first year, for example, there was a lot of this: I'm going to go out because I want to look a certain way. Um, and by the time, because my study was longitudinal, so it was over two years, by the time I interviewed them, like the fifth time or maybe the fourth time, they were saying, you know what, I don't know why I was being like that, you know, that's not really me, that's not how I want to be. So these are the sort of tensions, you know, do you, do you have more friends, but 
um, sort of less deep, or do you have fewer friends and, and more deep? And, you know, as an adult, I see that as well. You know, that hasn't gone away. I know many people who um, have loads and loads of friends, and I, I can't honestly believe they're, like, friends with all of them because there's not enough time to mm. do that. So it's like, well, how do you want to spend your time? And, and that brings me on to the next really key word here, which is existential. I spend a lot of time thinking about um, how to how should we spend our time or how should I spend my time? Not I as in Natalie, but, you know, we have such a finite amount of time um, on this earth and, you know, we're constantly, um, have we have loads of decisions to make all the time, you know, very superficial ones might be what you're going to eat and things like, shall I, you know, shall I bother studying for three years or shall I get a job? Mm-hmm. You know, do I want to have a baby? Was that going to change my life in a way that I never want to be changed you know um how am I going to safeguard my future if I get ill you know all these sorts of things and those sound a bit sad but there's also like happy things you know we ask ourselves as well but you know when you've got limited time in a day even you know do you spend two hours having a stroll around London or do you go to the library every day what happens if you go every day you know are you missing out on something else and there's so many questions and when I was speaking to the students, this idea of um, having to make a decision, it is, it, it's so difficult. Um, you know, when it's a beautiful sunny day, you know, nature's calling you to go on a walk. Well, if you've got the essay due in tomorrow, you know, is your well-being going to be sacrificed yeah. or, or not? Or maybe you haven't seen your friends in a while um, and you're worried about those relationships because, you know, something else I learned, which I kind of knew already, but... You know, relationships, particularly new friendships, take a lot of work. <clears throat> and when you have new friendships, you know, you can't hide away and do your work all the time. And you have to give back to those friendships. So that's another thing that people are thinking about. How can I develop these friendships? But I've got all this work to do. And some of them have jobs as well. And they're very busy. Um, and then one of these, um, one of the words in my thesis is completely... Um, unpronounceable which is phenomenological yeah how would you um, find that yes yeah, so um phenomenology is um is a philosophical theory and it's all about um experience and there's a famous phrase by the founder of phenomenology which who was Edmund Husserl which was going back to the things themselves and what this actually means is rather than take a concept like personal growth and think, right, what do we know about it? Um, and, you know, it's a phrase that is perfectly um, normal. I, hear, I always am surprised, actually, how often I hear the phrase personal growth. I'm obviously attuned to it because that's what I'm studying. But, you, you know, we have an idea of what that means. If I said to you, somebody grows in confidence, you have an idea what that might look like. But actually, phenomenology says, forget that. Just start again, blank slate. You don't actually know what it was like for that person. Um, So let's listen to it on their terms. And something completely new might come out of that that you weren't expecting. So get away, take away all those preconceptions. And so part of my um, research methodology was adopting this phenomenological approach, which, which means... I'm not going to assume I know the answer when I speak to them. I'm not having predefined categories. I let the students define what personal growth was. I didn't say to them, 
you know, using these dimensions, how would you give on a score of one to 10 how confident you are, for example? Confidence was a big theme that came up, but it came up from the bottom up, it came up from them. And I was so surprised at how many overlaps there were, given that they didn't come from me. Um, and I think just to say one more thing about um, existential philosophy, this is a whole philosophy in itself. And, and there are, in, in, it, in fact, it came from phenomenology. It was sort of an offshoot of it. And there is such a thing as existential phenomenology, but I prefer to keep the terms slightly separate because it gets a bit complicated. But existential um, philosophy is the philosophy of working out um, how we can meet life's ups and downs constructively. So rather than this, you might have heard of positive psychology and all this mindfulness stuff, and if you heard of gratitude journaling, you write three things that made you happy in the day. And I, my instant feeling with that is just this is pure schmaltz, you know? Like it makes me feel a bit nauseous thinking about it. And it's like, hang on, what, what if you had a really rubbish day? You know, and when you hear like really bad news items, which is all the time, of course, it just feels so insincere. You know, you're hearing about stuff in Syria, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to write down three things today. It just feels very insincere. And the amazing thing about existential philosophy is it's all about saying, you know what, there's good and bad, but the bad isn't necessarily bad as you think it's bad. It's bad in that um, in my life might not always go the way you want it and there's certainly sad things and we all have ups and downs within the day let alone between days and years but that is what life is and so embrace it like get on with it and not only get on with it but sort of think to yourself well what can I learn from those um bad things does it maybe heighten the good things for example um do, you, do we need setbacks in order to grow? Um, and that's really what my talk is about. So these these tensions that these students experienced, um, they I, when I first started, I really was looking at this far, uh, fairly one-dimensionally. You know, have they grown in confidence? Have they go, grown in how they conduct social relationships? And, you know, you end up sort of saying, like, yes... That wasn't really the story I, I realised I wanted to tell because there was far more to it. There was a lot of bumps along the way. It wasn't that it just grew, grew in confidence and that was the end of it. It was they had to go through like sort of personal trauma and upset in order to bounce one way and then they bounce the other way, yeah. might have bounced back and then gone somewhere either to one end or somewhere in the middle. So they were on this sort of, you know... Uh, a string intention where they're working out where they want to go but the real um, crux of the issue which I haven't even mentioned yet is about the role of coaching yeah yeah because yeah. these weren't students who were just um, going about their daily lives at university I it was this, this study was effectively an intervention um, the background to this is that um, as you may know the psychological services at all universities in the UK are completely overwhelmed and these problems fester so I just thought there must be a better way to deal with this now I am a coach and a teacher by um, profession and um, I just thought if we introduce coaching just like executives get coaching in businesses how about introducing coaching to university students because whenever I've had any form of coaching or given coaching, the, the results are amazing. And um, 
you feel really supported, you feel really encouraged. And I had this idea, I tapped into my network, uh, my professional network of coaches, and I managed to drum up 20 coaches who were giving pro bono, um, who agreed to participate pro bono. They met, <coughs> they met with the students over six sessions in one year or 12 sessions in two years. It was up to the students if they wanted to continue for a second year. And while they met up with them, I interviewed them every few months. So the people who did the study for one year, I interviewed four times. The people who did the study for two years, I interviewed five times. And what was interesting is that the role of the coach um, it was they, they were encouraging, they were supportive, they helped them navigate these tensions. They, they often identified that they were experiencing tensions. They sort of could see the context that was that the student was experiencing. You know, coaching is not about being directive, it's about reflecting back what was going on. But that process is in itself um, so helpful. Every single one of the students, apart from one, so not actually every single one, thought that coaching had been enormously beneficial in their personal growth. And there was one other aspect of coaching that was really noteworthy, which I had no idea was going to come out of this study. And that is that the relationship they had with the coaches was overwhelmingly about sort of a, a positive relationship, having a space in which to talk where they felt safe. Um, but, I, I was sort of trying not to use the word authentic, but I think I have to. A, an authentic relationship where they were heard and they didn't have to give back. It was almost like a selfish hearing. You know, they can say everything they want. Someone said it's different to a friend. With a friend, you have to listen to all their stuff as well. But this is all about them. And it was almost like they were all saying they just don't have that space in their lives and never have had to just think and reflect in this in this space and also with the time you know they had to commit to turning up they were all very invested with this process it was a volunteer sample so you'd expect they would be invested but um they were they found it to be a very special relationship and that made me also think about something which i talk about in the talk which is why is that why are they so desperately in need of this sort of support and like how come no one knows this and i did a bit of reading around um millennials because they are people who have been born after 1981 or, or something like that and um and I, as you may know like different generations have different sort of labels applied to them and millennials are meant to be people who do want some guidance, but they must have it on their own terms. They will not be told what to do. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. Something to do with, there's this phrase I um, quite like called sibling parenting, which is when the parents are more like brothers and sisters because they're not having that maternal, paternal authority over them. Uh, probably because they're rebelling against their own maternal and paternal authority. But what's going on here is that actually the students are craving for someone to look up to, but they don't want that person to boss them around. So it, when you talk about mentoring, which is actually quite, well, it's an ancient Greek concept, so it's as, as old as the hills, but mentoring is having an expert older person who um, sort of give you their advice. They don't want that. They want someone 
to hold that space for them and let them think about answering their own questions. And that is really what coaching is. And what I find amazing about the whole process, when you think about it, this is the one group of people you could guarantee coaching will be a hit with Mm -hmm. for that reason, because of their millennial status. And well, not status, but because of their millennial traits. And, um, And so it's not really a surprise it worked, but I think because it's not taken up in universities, I know a few universities where they do this, they normally do it within MBA courses, so like for business students, but I think this needs to be rolled out um, for people who want it across any um, discipline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that you've seen the benefits that it really had on those those young people and how it helped them, you know, really does give um, credence to that. Because it really helped them reflect. I think. Yeah. I think this is the. I think one of my main take home messages is that. We've all got these tensions in life. That's just what life is. We all have these ups and downs and things to resolve. But it'd be really easy to sort of bury your head under the sand and just get on with it. But if you don't take stock every now and then and work out where you are on some of these things, not as, not I wouldn't go as far as to say your principles because it's not about being moral. It's just about, well, what are you going to do to sort this out? Um, and the coaches were able to ha- hold the students to account. Yeah. So they had to come up with a decision. Um, so that's why I think it worked. Yeah. So I, I'm interested in anything that surprised you um, from the research. Yeah, there, there was one thing um, that surprised me. And I, I struggle with this um, in, in, in my life as well as a coach and a teacher. Because when the students were talking about these authentic relationships they were having with these coaches and they felt really listened to and supported, the thing is, when the um, sessions finish, that's the end of the relationship. So all this great relationship you had has now gone. And some coaches sent them an email, you know, hi, how are you? But the, the students said that they didn't want to... They felt they couldn't burden them almost with an answer, you know, like, uh, apart from a very um, uh, quick reply, you know, everything's fine, which, which is not a reply, of course, because in the spirit of what I've been saying, the everything's fine doesn't answer anything at all. Um, and so they went from having these really deep, authentic relationships that moved them to like, oh, well, the coach is out of your life. And that is the thing that I struggle with with these professional relationships because you're taught as a coach as a psychologist that you've got these very strict professional boundaries and one of the things at one point in life I'd like to think about is is this something that's healthy because yes you don't want to get too involved in people's lives but on the other hand you're all humans and once you've had that connection it is a bit bizarre just to never speak to that person again and remember that they've told these people very deep personal things so you might say oh that's a good reason not to be communicating again because they sort of are holding that information and that you don't want to sort of use it over someone of course you don't but on the other hand you know I keep when I often say to people we are all human beings like at the end of the day whether you call yourself a psychologist or a coach or and these boundaries are so artificial that we set up um I think I'm right in saying that there's a type of psychotherapy where they 
do blur those boundaries a little bit and they don't stick to it so formally but I'm not a psychotherapist I don't know too much about that but that made me a little bit sad that those relationships sort of ended in such a a blunt way. Did you get any um, anything from the students about what they were specifically talking to their coaches about or was it more your interest was more in the kind of impact of that coaching relationship on them? No, my interest wasn't really in the relationship at all. That was sort of like a side story that came out. Absolutely, my focus was on what exactly was being said. Um, they would, so there were lots of categories. There were, thing about, there were things about careers, um, social relationships, um, dealing with things like time management, um, and dealing with bigger issues like confidence and assertiveness. Now, what's so bizarre about um, some of those, you know, you talk about careers and time management and you just think, that doesn't sound very existential. That just sounds like business-like, you know. Um, what's she on about with the existential? But you'd be amazed how this was totally linked to like life and the bigger picture. I mean, careers is all about, um, you know, where you want to sort of make your mark and, and sort of put your stick in the ground mm-hmm. and to have the courage to even do that. You know, someone was saying they want to be a publisher. Well, the coach said, well, have you done any applications? He said, applications. And he said, of course not. I'm not good enough to actually do that. And, you know, th- there's all those sorts of things. Um, and then there's this idea of un- uncertainty that came up in the careers. You know, what if you don't like your career? Is your life over? Can you change careers? What if you don't actually want a career in that sense? You just want to sort of be a bit more nomadic. Um, you know, one person was very keen not to put roots down, which is something else that I was very surprised about. In fact, lots of them didn't want to put roots down in that sense. Um, the thing about time management sounds terribly corporate, but again, it's about where do you want to use your time in the day? Should you actually be speaking to a human being properly at least once a day? Or if you're busy with work, can that go by the wayside? Well, it turns out it can't go up by the wayside because it actually makes you ill not to speak to somebody. You know, we are wired to be social. Um, and it's about embracing that, you know. We, we are wired in lots of different ways. And I think the students were finding out how this worked and to say, okay, if I need to go and have, um, you know, an, an hour's walk around Sainsbury's just to keep me human and then go back to studying English literature, then so be it. And I'm just going to do it. I'm going to worry and feel guilt about it. Um, so, yeah, so they were very practical subjects also things about feeling like they didn't fit in, that they weren't clever enough to be there. Um, and this gap between the staff who at the beginning they felt were unapproachable and after a year they felt not only were they approachable but some of them um, were actually not on a pedestal as they had thought. They had some very strange beliefs that the students couldn't square with what they knew about them. Um, There was things about um, fitting in in terms of culture. You know, what if you don't drink? And what if you've got no interest in getting drunk all the time? You know, there's these ideas, that's what people do at university. Well, guess what? They don't actually. And, 
you know, being strong enough to, to say, I don't want to do that. This is not what I want to do. I want to do this. And then finding other like-minded people. How to use time in terms of societies and clubs. You know, there's so much going on that they could do. But it, there was a financial implication, you know, to join a society costs a certain amount of um, subs. And if you don't want to, if you can't afford to pay all of that, um, then you've got to be very judicious in what you're actually going to spend your time doing. And I think so much of what you said speaks to the challenges around university, but also, as you said, you know, the, the, the growth around it isn't just in relation to where you're going to go with your career. It's going to be it's so much more than that. So I guess just to finish then, um, in a nutshell, what can people expect from coming along to your talk? Well, although I've spoken for a long time about university, and that's because that is the context, you've got to investigate personal growth in a context, and I chose the university context because that's something I'm very familiar with and something I find interesting, and it's certainly a point of transition. But everything I've said, and particularly about existential philosophy and having a framework to, to help sort of guide your thoughts, can really be applied to your own life. And um, I think one of the things is, you know, don't be surprised if you come away thinking about growth in your own life and, you know, how that can be stimulated, increased, um, and also just to reevaluate things. You know, things that you might have written off as, oh, you know, I wasted that year doing that. You know, you might re reframe this um, in view of what you learn about existential philosophy. Great. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. It's been really fascinating to hear about your work and looking forward to hearing more on the 21st. Pleasure.